We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a wall on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. Yeah. God, thank you for this morning that we get to gather together and uh, just go through your word and learn more about you and who you are and just how we can be more like your son and just uh, guide us in our hearts to be open to what um, is preached today and the lessons and things that you would want us to take for the week and um, carry along with us for impacting the city and our neighborhoods and our families. So we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Griselda. All right, so you guys heard that everyone needs to wake up, right? That's not even the part of the text we're preaching today. I just had her read that part because I know some of y'all will be falling asleep in church on Sundays, and I wanted you to get that warning, right? It could lead to your doom, to your demise. We have no open windows here, but I might throw something at you, okay? So wake up. Let's go. Uh, No, that is a text that is very strange, isn't it? It's a very uh, interesting story. And it's kind of like, why, why is that put in there in the middle of it? There's actually a lot going on in chapter 20, which we will kind of summarize. But it's sandwiched with that interesting story. And I think for a very good reason. But oftentimes, this is what happens. Is, is it is preached as a, hey, don't fall asleep in church kind of text, right? Uh, oftentimes, it is a very humorous text when it's preached. And it is, right? It's kind of a funny story. Um, but I, w- I want us to also get the, the gravity of what just happened. Like this young man, most people believe, is around 13 years old or so. And they're, they're in this upper room, and they don't have light switches, right? And so they have a bunch of candles going. So there's all these candles flickering. And, and what do candles also give off aside from light? Heat. You got a bunch of people stuffed into there. It's stuffy, and so it's warm. It's late. I love how Luke says, and in some translations it says, because Paul kept going on and on, <laughs> right? And like some of you guys can relate to that. You're like, I know, I know a guy who does that, right? I'm not going to name any names. So you're sitting in there. He, he's a young guy. He's, his parents are probably like, come on, we're going to go hear Paul talk, right? And Paul knows he's probably not going to see these people ever again. And so he's wanting to get in everything, right? I only have so much time with you before I leave, so we're just going to, we're going to do it all. And so he's going on and on and on. And it's stuffy, so the kid's like, oh, I'm going to go sit by the windowsill here, get some air, right? He's trying his best to stay awake. And he's, you know that little head nod you start to get, right? 
and then you start to look like a bobblehead after a while. And then this 13-year-old boy falls out of the window because he falls asleep. Like, the, the gravity of this, right? No, I don't, I just got the pun I did right there, the gravity. <laughs> but also, this is someone's child, right? My sons are 13 still. They're going to be 14 soon. If, if one of them, if this had happened to one of them, and then what does, what does Paul do? He goes down and he like hugs the body and he says, don't worry about it. Let's go back upstairs, finish breaking bread and keep listening to me talk a little bit more. I would be like, you are out of your mind, right? Seriously? Like this child is laying there. But then it ends with them walking away with him alive. Totally fine. Crazy story, right? Like what in the world is going on here? But here's the thing, that that story is right in the middle of us hearing about Paul recognizing he is done in this region of the world. It starts with talking about his his kind of new posse rolling with him. And he starts naming all these people. It's so-and-so from Thessalonica, so-and-so from Berea, so-and-so from, and they're from all over. All these different cities that he had traveled through. And then it ends with him saying, hey, call the Ephesian leaders here. Let me talk with them because I'm not going to see them again. And I want to give them some instructions and a farewell. And they're crying because they're like, oh, we're never going to see. They've come to love this man. And he says, I'm not coming back. He knows this. Like somehow God had said this to him, had whispered this truth to him. You're not going to see these people again. right?" And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. Paul's been on this kind of course for a while now. He set out on three different trips, and this is the end of his third missionary journey. And I want us just to kind of see what that looks like. But before we look at a map, a picture of that, you guys, if you've ever watched a football game, uh, my sons are playing football for their school right now. You know that one player who, like, they get the ball, and they start just, like, running, kind of zigzagging all over, and they're trying to juke out the other team, but they never actually go forward? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, it's great. Like, you got away from that tackle. Cool. But you need to start moving forward to actually move the ball down the field and eventually score, right? And so you got, like, the kid on the team who's just, like, running backwards, right, and going side to side. And you just ran a whole lot of yards, but you didn't gain any. That's kind of what, if we look at this map, it starts to look like. But Paul does have a forward movement in mind. He has a destination in mind this whole time. And so I want us to see that. We got a picture of his first journey here in this blue arrow. So if we start up here in Antioch, remember this was his home base, the church that he was one of the leaders at, and they prayed over him and sent him out, right? And so he goes along and travels through all this stuff and makes a little loop-de-loop and comes back, okay? That was his first trip. He visited a few cities. It was great. But then the second trip, the next picture, he widens that circle quite a bit, right? So in the green now, that's his second trip. And it's kind of following a similar pattern, but he spreads it out. All right, third trip. If you notice this one in the purple, what's it doing? He's really kind of going back and hitting a lot of those same cities he had visited in his first and second journey, right? I'll stay on this side so you guys can see a little better. I'm blocking it. 
he goes back and he hits a lot of the same cities. And the reason why is he knows I'm not going to see them again. So the first two trips were like, these people need to hear the gospel. Chapter 20 begins with telling us people from these very cities he was at are now traveling along with him, sharing the gospel with him. So it's been effective. These cities have heard the gospel. Churches have been planted. People are following Jesus. So this third trip, he's going back and he's saying, I'm not going to be with you anymore. Like you guys continue in these ways, continue to follow Jesus, continue to preach this, continue to be formed as a community by God and his word together for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of other people hearing this good news. And so he makes one third trip, one final trip to encourage them and exhort them before he goes. And then finally, this is the movement he does here in the orange, right? So he's going to come down here, and at this point, uh, he's, he's up in Ephesus, where we're reading right now, right? And then he starts to leave, but then he tells him, hey, send these Ephesus leaders, these Ephesian leaders back to me. I want to give them some instruction at the end of chapter 20. And he tells them, I'm not going to see you because I have to make my way down here to Jerusalem. And I want to get to Jerusalem before the Pentecost. Now, if you guys remember what Pentecost is, uh, before the Spirit came, all Pentecost means is 50. And it was 50 days after the Passover feast. And they would have another celebration with that, right? So seven weeks of seven days, and then on the, that would be 49. Then on the 50th day, they'd have a celebration. Well, that was the day, if you remember years ago, at the beginning of Acts, when the Spirit of God came upon these first followers of Jesus. When Jesus gave this promise in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses, right? He says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Paul wants to get back, and he wants to celebrate that with the Jerusalem church. But that's not his end game. He's actually going to travel from there all the way over to Rome. Now remember, this is all the Roman Empire at this time. Like, the Caesar of Rome is in charge of all of this, but he wants to get to the capital of it. Now, a lot of people would think that's where Paul's journey ends, because actually what we'll find as we wrap up the book of Acts, Acts, at the very last uh, part of it, it leaves Paul in Rome. He stays there for about two years or so in his own house that he rents, but I don't think that's the end of the story. In fact, it wasn't Paul's plan for that to be the end of the story. It's just the last part that Luke writes about. We see actually in the book of Romans, Romans 15, and we could throw that up on the screen. Romans actually was written by Paul. He was writing this letter to the Roman church before he got there. And here's proof of that in chapter 15. He says, I no longer have any work to do in these regions. This is why the regions we just saw on that map where he was, he's saying, hey, my work here is done. Right? So he's likely writing this letter while he's doing his third trip around to encourage and exhort everybody. He says, I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to where? Spain. That's his end game. It looks like he's juking all over the map, right? And he's doing all these zigzags. But he's got an end game. He's got an end zone right there that he's trying to get to. I, I, whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there. So he wants the Roman church, actually, to help him get to Spain. That's where he wants to end up. Once I have first enjoyed your company for a while, 
Right now, I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. He goes on to talk about how uh, the church in Macedonia and Achaia, they were actually giving support to the poor in Jerusalem. They had heard that there were people suffering in Jerusalem, these believers. And so he said, hey, uh, they said, hey, we want, we want to give support to them. And Paul writes about like, hey, that's a good thing, right? Not only does it display the love of Jesus, but he says, the, the Jewish council said it was right for these Gentile believers to be embraced in the faith without having to be circumcised and jump through all these hoops. And so all they're doing is returning the favor in a sense. But then he goes on, if we could throw that back up there real quick, sorry. In verse 28, and he says, after explaining that, he's basically saying, I'm going to go and deliver this help, this aid that they've given. But then after that, so when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. Now, why is Spain important? Why does this matter? Spain was actually a place called Tarshish back in the Old Testament days of a prophet named Jonah. Do you guys remember that story? It's the same area, Tarshish. Now, Jonah, if you don't remember that story, uh, my kids and I, we just watched the remake of Pinocchio last night. Trash. Anyway, um, if you love Tom Hanks, I'm sorry I said that to you, but it, it wasn't great. Um, and, and that story, right, the, the reason I connect to that is because of the big whale that swallows him up, right? It's like, you totally stole that from the Bible. Anyway, um, in, in Jonah's story, God calls him to go to Tarshish. And he calls him to go there to speak the news that God has given them that they need to repent. Turn away from their, their selfish and violent way of life. And God would rescue them. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he knows what's going to happen. He knows that they will hear that news and they will repent and God will forgive them and rescue them. That's the reason he doesn't want to go. The end of Jonah in chapter four, he tells God exactly that. It's not because he's afraid of what they would do to him. It's not like he'd rather be thrown into the sea and have a giant something kind of whale thing swallow him up then go there. He's not afraid for his life. He doesn't want them to be part of the good news of God who rescues. Not them. Those people are wicked and evil, right? Jonah was an ultimate picture of what all of the people of Israel had begun to display in that time. That God had called them to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to the other nations and to invite them in to the story of a God, Yahweh, who was rescuing his people. And they didn't want to do it. They wanted to hold on to that for themselves. And so Paul, in this moment, is actually living out a better Jonah story. Right? He, he, he's bringing a fullness to that story. No, no, we will go to Tarshish. We will go to Spain. Even though it has a, a new name at this time, right? Uh, it's similar to Tarshish. I don't remember how to say it, but Rome had kind of renamed it. It wasn't Spain yet either. That's been translated for us. It had a new name at this time, but it was still in Paul's day, just like in Jonah's day, considered the ends of the earth. The outermost, the furthest west you could go. I think I have that last map picture we could show there. Uh, so this is where Italy, this is currently named now what they are, right? Italy. This is Spain right here. So if you remember how far that orange line had to go for him to get over to Rome, and then he's going to make another trip. And by the way, there, even though Acts ends with him in Rome, 
A lot of the people that Paul himself discipled, they found writings from them who have said that Paul made it. He made it over to Spain. So we don't, we don't know from the Bible itself, but there's a lot of writings that suggest that. So he would have kept going, and this would have been the furthest west you could go in their mind. In their known world, that was the ends of the earth. What did Jesus say? You'll receive power when my spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Paul is simply trying to live out the story that Jesus has invited him into. He's trying to live out this mission, this co-mission. Jesus has invited his followers to labor in the mission with him of all the nations, of all the world, knowing and hearing the good news that God still saves. Jesus' name, Yeshua, is Yahweh saves. He's the fulfillment of that. Now, why in the middle of those things, hearing about Paul traveling with these people from all over, you know, these different cities, different people groups that he's been preaching to in the beginning of chapter 20, and then the end of it saying, I got to go get more, right? I got to go reach more nations to the ends of the earth. Why in the middle of that does Luke give us this weird story of a teenage boy falling out of a window to his death? I think it's mostly to encourage people in my role to go, oh, even the Apostle Paul bored people to death. I'm just kidding. That's not it. No, I think there's something much deeper happening here, right? Now, one, because the story really happened. (laughs) Like, this really took place. But... Listen, these authors, they had a lot of content to choose from, right? Especially in the, in, the, in the days of Jesus, we're told if we were to write down everything Jesus did, there's not enough books in the world that could capture it. There was a lot of things happening in Paul's day too, right? Why did Luke intentionally choose to sandwich this story right in the middle of that? I think it's possibly because he's trying to show the legitimacy of what Jesus was doing through this work. Because believe it or not, there were still a lot of people at this time, even though the Jerusalem council had met and said, yes, they don't have to be circumcised. It doesn't matter what nation they're from. If they believe in the good news of Jesus, they're with us. They're brothers and sisters. Even though that was the case, there were still a lot of people in the church who were upset that Paul and his friends were inviting all these people in. And so what Luke knows is these people need to hear, no, this is God's plan. This is God's mission moving forward. And nothing's going to stop it. And he was showing, I think, the legitimacy of God doing this through a simple man named Paul, through a man who had once attacked the church before, and yet now has become a new person, a new creation empowered with the Spirit to live on this mission. Now, here's how I I think he's doing that. He's connecting the dots for us by using a lot of language that the Jewish hearers, who would have been upset by these other nations coming in, they would have caught it right away. There's a story of a prophet named Elijah. You guys know about him? So in 1 Kings chapter 14, we'll read that real quick. Elijah, as a prophet, as a man of God, people had seen that the power of God was on him. Now, he's nobody special in his own self either, right? Just like Paul. 
But God was moving through this man in order to bring a message to people. And sometimes that message had to be displayed through acts of power. And so this man, Elijah, is called to a family because a child had died. And listen to what happens. Elijah said to her, this is to the mom, give me your son. So he took him from her arms, brought him to the upstairs room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Listen to this. Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came back into him again. There's another guy named Elisha. He was actually the apprentice to Elijah. So he followed Elijah around, and he learned from him. And at one point, Elijah gets taken up by God. His life is taken up. I don't, I don't even know what that means, you guys. It's taken up in a whirlwind, if you remember that story. Like he, they didn't actually see him die. They didn't have to bury his body. There were only a couple people in the Bible who get told a story like that. And he, Enoch, Elijah, like he gets taken up to be with God, Right? But Elisha sees this, and he starts taking up the mantle. Actually, that's where that phrase comes from, taking up the mantle. The mantle is just his cloak. And so the cloak drops on the ground, and he literally takes it up, and he starts wearing it. And he now becomes God's tool, his his utility to to bring out what he was doing through Elijah. And so in 2 Kings chapter 4, we get this story of Elisha doing a similar thing. When Elisha got to the house, he discovered the boy lying dead on his bed. So he went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the boy. He put mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, while he bent down over him. The boy's flesh became warm. It sounds really weird, doesn't it? I know. Elisha got up, went into the house, and paced back and forth. Then he went up and bent down over him again. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Why sneezing seven times? I mean, I have some terrible allergies, and like I have sneezed seven times in a row before. It is not fun, let me tell you. Uh, but, but why was that significant? The number seven has huge significance for the ancient Near Eastern world, for the Hebrew people, and this number of wholeness, completion in life. Uh, and sneezing... What, what, what comes out when you sneeze? Not boogers and mocos and all that stuff, right? That too, but... There has to be breath in you for a sneeze to come out. This word that they had for breath was the same word for spirit, ruach. The ruach, the spirit of life, had returned to him in full. There's some weird details in the Bible, but if we dig a little bit, you get to something really cool, right? Something significant. That the breath of life had returned to him. The spirit of God did something there and completely healed him. What are the commonalities in those stories right there? One, Elijah and Elisha, they didn't do this in their own strength. Both times we're told they pray to the Lord. Who's doing this work? Right? They're instruments of his power. Acts chapter 9, which we went through earlier in the year, we hear a story about Peter. Now, Peter, he's staying uh, in a certain city at that time, and there's this lady named Tabitha, if you remember this story. And Tabitha was a widow, and she passed away. Peter sent everyone out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, and turned toward the body. He said, Tabitha, get up. 
she opened her eyes. Let me, we could skip over that real quick. Hold on, let me back up. What did he do? He knelt down, prayed. It's not his power either, right? Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa. Why? Because many believed in the Lord. This is why this powerful work is being done through ordinary people so that they would see and hear and experience and know the good news of a God who brings life when there was once death, of a God who rescues us out of the pit. Now those stories, I think that story of Peter was put there to go, hey, do you remember how God did this through the prophets of old? This is the same God still working today. It's the same spirit still operating and breathing life into those who were dead. Peter, people had no problem believing, oh yeah, he was with Jesus, right? Like that makes sense that, those, that the spirit that was operating in the prophets of old is now operating in this guy. And so we get a very similar story now of Paul. It's not, it's not just a story about don't fall asleep in church, Right? It's a story legitimizing. God is doing this through the other nations now too, through a man who was once attacking and murdering you guys because that's how God works. He redeems and he revives and he restores and he makes new and he gives life where there was once death. And so Paul goes and he stretches himself out over the body of the child. Sound familiar, right? That's what Elijah and Elisha both did. He stretches himself out over the body of the child. That's not happening as a coincidence. And then he embraces, right? And he gets back and he goes, hey, let's go continue partaking in the breaking of the bread. This is like when we take our communion supper together. Let's go continue in that because we're actually remembering the one who went into death on behalf of this boy. It sounds so weird that he's like, hey, guys, just don't worry about him. Let's go back and finish eating and listen to me talk on and on again, right? But what he's saying is, hey, let's go remember the one who gave his body up for this boy and for you and for I and for all the nations that I'm sent to. And they go and they do just that with him. Like, we don't hear any, Luke doesn't lead on to say anything about them protesting. We're like, wait, what about this guy, right? They go and they take and they reflect on the Jesus who gave his life. The one who stretched himself out on the cross. Who stretched himself out over death and the grave for you and I. And just like God did through Elijah and through Elisha and through Peter, and he's about to do through Paul here, through Jesus, the Spirit of God, not only breathes life back into Jesus' body so he can walk out of that grave, but Jesus himself, when he shows up to the disciples and says, hey, do you see me? I'm alive. He breathes on them and says, I give you my Spirit. Jesus himself sends the Spirit, the Ruach, the breath of life, over all who would believe and trust in him to the ends of the earth, all nations. Now, if we just back up for a second, though, I want us just to imagine that moment when Paul says, hey, he's going to be okay. 
Come back upstairs with me. Let's reflect on Jesus. Let's, let's talk about him a little bit more. Let's pray. Let's eat. And how you're feeling in that moment, right? Because here's the reality is that's our moment. That's our moment. Jesus has come and he has stretched himself over the grave and death on our behalf and he has risen again, but he hasn't yet returned to make all things new and all things will have life again. That hasn't happened yet. And we're in this in-between time where it's like, hey, come and remember. And the hope of, hey, pointing forward, he's going to be all right. That's the hope we're... It's going to be all right, you guys. One day Jesus will return. One day we will experience no more pain, no more hurt, no more brokenness, no more sin and selfishness, no more violence. We will experience the fullness of God with us. But we're in that in-between space. And going back up into that room and taking that meal, like just imagine how that would have felt. And don't we feel that way often in this life? I know the hope of what's going to come. I've seen what has happened. I've heard of it at least. But right now, what I see is death. What I see is loss and pain. What I see is brokenness. What I see is division. And listen, in that moment, the Spirit of God was present still just as much as he was present when he breathed life into the little boy that Elijah was stretching himself over, just as much as he was present when Elisha stretched himself over that little boy, just as much as he was present when Peter did an amazing thing with Tabitha, just as much as he was present when this Eutychus young man comes back to life, because that's how that story ended, right? They, they take the boy away alive and they rejoice. But in the meantime, the Spirit of God was just as present in that room in the midst of their pain and their wondering and their confusion. And listen, he's just as much present here today. You you will fully experience that and rejoice just like they did when they got that boy up and walked away alive. That will happen one day. But he is with us here and now even. He's present here. The promise and the hope is not that you will avoid pain and brokenness in the meantime, in this in-between space. The promise is that this God who was with Elijah and Elisha and Peter and Paul is with you. For all of us who, who believe in and follow and trust in Jesus, and yes, we're trying to do it better and better each day, listen, the Spirit of God, His presence, is here with you to help you do just that. And not just to help you do better things, but to help you trust and believe and hope and love and have peace in the midst of chaos. And so my encouragement for us this morning is that we would listen, that we would look, that we would pay attention to the spirit of the living God who is with us even here and now while we face death. You know, the psalm promises us that you may pass through the shadow of the valley of death, but the good shepherd leads you through. 
It's just a shadow. What happens? You, you come out on the other side of that shadow into light, into warmth, into green pastures, into flowing waters. And so death can't really touch us. That's why Paul can say, it's not that this kid like, just wasn't fully dead, right? Oh, he's just hurt. He could say, no, there's still life here for him because he was merely passing through. We just uh, went to a funeral for a 93-year-old man yesterday. Talk about being long-winded, you guys, and falling asleep. It was like a three-hour service. Probably like 300 plus people there for this man. Uh, And it went on and on, it did. (laughs) But what a celebration it was of how God used this ordinary man who had his faults, who had his pains. He, He lost his first wife, she passed away. He lost one of his sons. He had a lot of hard things happen in his life, and yet he was a presence of bringing hope and joy and peace through the words of Jesus to many around him. And there were so many people in that room who were following Jesus because of that. Because like Paul, he said, there's a mission Jesus has for me. And in the power of his spirit, I will keep moving forward. I will keep moving forward on that mission because I know that he is faithful and he will do it. Paul gets to Jerusalem, he gets imprisoned. Doesn't look like he's going to make it to Rome at first. There's a shipwreck. All these spoiler alerts, sorry guys. On the way to Rome, shipwreck. But he gets there. And we have writings that say he got to the ends of the earth, so to speak, for them in Spain later. Because God is faithful in his mission. His spirit is present here with us now. Amen? We're going to go to the table, just like Paul brought those believers up into the room to remember the life that was given to us, the body that was stretched out over the grave on our behalf so that we could be refilled with the spirit of life of God. That's why we go to the table every week. We take the bread, we remember Jesus' body broken, we dip it in the cup, remember his blood spilled for us, and we partake because as we share in the suffering of his death, we will also share, scripture reminds us, in the glory of his resurrection. Amen?